Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, and the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. Hey, John. How are you? Good, Susan. And how are you? I'm good. I gather you got uh, slammed with snow and just I'm um, just a little bit north of you and really didn't get the same thing. You have like two feet of snow, the most epic snowstorm on record or one of the most epic snowstorms yeah, on record? I think it's record? supposed to be the biggest one since 1896, but uh, you know, the, the subways for the most part kept running and uh, we never lost power. So we're dealing with it. Yeah, well, I have you on video. I know the listeners can't see you, but I see that you have your stop. I thought it was Star Wars. It looks like the Star Wars, but it's Stop Wars t-shirt on. So I think this is really appropriate. People keep giving me these anti-war t-shirts. And uh, I got to say, this is one of my favorites because people do a double take. They look at it. They they see the, the, the uh, typography and it looks like um, Star Wars. And then they realize... It actually says stop wars. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where am I finding you? Uh, I know you hail from New Jersey. Is that where I'm finding you right now? Yeah. So I'm in uh, in Hoboken. Um, I teach at the Stevens Institute of Technology, which is about a three or four minute walk uh, north of my apartment building. Uh, So I moved here a couple of years ago to be close to my school. Okay. And what do you teach? I teach... I'm sort of a jack of all trades. Um, I'm not a conventional academic. I don't have a PhD. I just have a master's in journalism. So uh, I teach uh, writing courses, courses in uh, science writing. Uh, I've taught history of science. I teach freshman comp. Um, the course that I really love to teach and that's, uh, that's relevant for this show is called War and Science. Hmm. Um, I, I have a once a week seminar in that I've been teaching that, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years and it explores, uh, different theories of, uh, warfare, um, and also the connection between scientific research and, uh, and war. Yeah. Well, I want to get to it because I have a feeling you have a lot to say and I just want to tell people that the reason I have you on the show, you're a little, you're not a process intervener like many of the people I interview, but, uh, you wrote, you wrote a book in 2012 with a bold title called The End of War. <laughs> and um, I remember seeing that book and going, great, you know, because I think there's a lot to be saying about that, which I'm hoping you will say, um, tell the listeners why you could have written a book like that. But um, before, I, before I get to that, I mean, you, you've had, uh, be interesting just to hear, you know, and I realized I didn't print out your bio like I normally do. So I wouldn't mind you just uh, giving the listeners a little bit of your background uh, sure. as a science writer, and um, and then I and then I have another kind of more preliminary question for you. So I don't know what would you what would you say about your background first? All right. Well, I think first I should say um, I'm a child of the '60s, so I um, I graduated from high school in 1971. That means that I think like you. I grew up under the threat of the Cold War and the possibility that uh, there could be uh, a, a war of these horrible weapons 
that could destroy not only all humans, but all life on Earth. So I think like a lot of kids in my generation, I had nightmares about um, uh, the nuclear holocaust. And uh, I can remember um, some of the coverage of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early, uh, early 1960s. It scared the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in the late 60s, uh, the Vietnam War was raging, and I was eligible for the draft. Uh, I was actually uh, – I had a, a number that was called in the lottery. Fortunately, my number was, um, was very high, and the war was starting to wind down in 1971, so there really was no chance that I would go. Um, but I grew up um, worried about war, thinking about war constantly, like a lot of people in, in my generation. I, uh, I uh, participated in a few anti-war protests, both in my hometown. I grew up in Connecticut and uh, in, in New York City. And I had never stopped thinking about war and, and worrying about war. Uh, when I became a science writer in, um, in the early 1980s, uh, I wrote about a lot of things. I always have been a, a gross generalist as a science writer. Uh, I started writing for a magazine, uh, an engineering magazine called IEEE Spectrum in the early 80s um, and covered uh, national security issues. Um, uh, one of the first stories I wrote was about, um, was about the uh, Korean airliner that was shot down by the Russians in mm-hmm. 1983, which is a real flashpoint in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a lot about the nuclear arms race, about, uh, uh, about intelligence, electronic intelligence and spying and so forth. And then I went to Scientific American in, in the, um, the mid-80s and started writing also about um, theories of war. Why do wars happen? Uh, when did war emerge in human history or uh, prehistory? And uh, why? Is, is there some kind of biological component in, uh, in human warfare? And um, so I've been writing about these things for uh, decades now. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I actually thought after uh, the Cold War ended after the Soviet Union collapsed uh, in the early 1990s, that we were headed for a period of peace. A lot of people were thinking that way. It was a period of uh, tremendous optimism in the early 90s. People talked about the peace dividend. You remember that? I do. do. That, uh, you know, our enormous military budget would decline and we'd have all this money to spend on other uh, social problems. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. and we've had all this terrible violence and, uh, and mayhem that has ensued uh, since then. And um, I, I actually wrote my book, The End of War, in response to a talk that I gave in our hometown in, um, in Garrison, New York, this little hamlet in the Hudson River, uh, in 2003, right after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And uh, Frank Gear, who's the, uh, the uh, uh, priest in the Episcopal Church in Garrison, who's a friend uh, probably of yours as well. As, as, uh, of mine as well, yeah. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me to give a talk mm-hmm. on uh, what science knew about the causes of war mm-hmm. uh, to his congregation. And I was happy to do that. And I, so I, I talked about some of the theories of warfare, both biological and uh, social and economic. And... Um, and then I, I remember I went through these series and I'm, I'm looking out at the audience 
And, um, and then I, and everybody looked kind of gloomy. So I, I had this little conclusion telling people that I was personally very optimistic that war would end, that, you know, we were hitting a rough patch with the invasion of Iraq. Um, but, uh, we would figure out a way to stop fighting wars once and for all, and there would be world peace. And I'm looking out at the congregation. These are all friends of mine, you know, for the most part, liberal, uh, peace loving, um, Democrats, and they're all looking at me like I'm out of my mind. And, <laughs> so uh, naive. Yes. And I said, I said, well, okay, let me just see a show of hands. How many of you think that there will uh, come a time when war ends once and for all? And virtually nobody uh, raised their hands. And, um, and then we had a discussion about it and people, uh, were saying they thought war is part of human nature or, you know, there's a military industrial complex that's perpetuating war. They had all the re- these reasons why war would never end. And, um, I found this really distressing, mm-hmm. this, this extreme pessimism, um, among people who politically, uh, otherwise were very much like myself. And so, um, I, I wondered if this was maybe an anomalous group. I went out after that and started surveying um, other people. Every opportunity I, I, I had when I was uh, giving a talk, um, both in the United States and in uh, in Europe. A couple of years later, I started uh, teaching uh, at Stevens Institute. I've asked every one of my classes this question: Do you think war will ever end? And uh, you know, I've gotten thousands of responses mm-hmm. now, and uh, overwhelmingly. Um, about nine out of 10 people uh, say, no, war will never end. War is a permanent part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they would cite these various reasons. Uh, in some cases, uh, scientific theories that supposedly supported their fatalism. And I wrote The End of War basically to try to talk people out of that pessimism. And by the way, I should say that for the purposes of this show, I know, you know, by the way, this is a wonderful show and I'm really Thank delighted uh, to be on it. Um, and, you know, because the, the peace movement is so important and people engaged in, in conflict resolution. Well, you know, I, um, so, I just I heard a, a friend of my one of my business colleagues came into this program. We were doing something on systemic team coaching, which is a pretty interesting w- way to go about uh, improving collaboration and systems. Uh, but she came in and said that she had just heard on the news that by 2050, there would be more plastic in the ocean than there would be fish. And, <laughs> you know, and I thought, wow, you know, like it's, it's just such a great, a, a, a little anecdote, big anecdote to say, we, you know, we, it'd be really wise to get our act together to clean this up so that we can then clean up the planet because the planet obviously needs a lot of cleaning up. And, uh, I mean, if you can make the argument that we could actually clean up the process of war, that's a lot of time, money, focus, that human beings have put uh, for so long. Um, but while I have your, t- you know, I was, I just, you, I, I want to cycle back for a second about sort of the early things that plant these seeds in us, because uh, I don't know if you also had to do the duck and cover thing yes. in the Cuban Missile Crisis, yes. you know, where like in my school, the alarm bell would go off and we'd all have to run down to the basement and we'd have to put our, you know, in case it was an air raid and, We'd have to put our knees between our legs and our hands over our heads, and uh, and then I remember one. <laughs> I remember one day we had to do the same. Th- we, we the same alarm went off if there was a fire versus an air raid, 
And uh, one day the alarm goes off and we all go down to the basement and inter- and we're all sitting there ducking and covering and the fire marshal comes down totally annoyed because <laughs> that was a fire alarm, not a duck and cover alarm, you know, and we all would have gotten burned up, all these little kids. But um, uh, yeah, I remember uh, because then there was the poster um, taking off on duck and cover. So put your head between your um, knees and then kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> Yes, I remember that one too. Well, just going back to what I was saying before, even in the anti-war movement, even among people who devote their lives to peace and social justice, I've encountered tremendous pessimism about the future and especially about the possibility of um, getting beyond not just the wars that we're in right now, but getting beyond militarism, getting beyond the culture of war. Um, so, John, I want to ask you another, another question. I'm interrupting you, but I, sure. another okay. thing that I think is interesting about you is your your his. I mean, I'm I'm a you know I always bring a systems lens to things, and I think family systems are super interesting. And you have in your family system the the I think, and I was reading in your book, your father, your grandfather. Can you say a little bit about them? Because sure. Just in terms of how you became who you are, but it's interesting who they well, were. So I I grew up in, I guess, what you could call a military family. My father um, went to Annapolis and uh, graduated in time to serve in World War II. And my my grandfather served in World War One and in World War II. Um, both of them served in... in uh, the Navy. And, um, so I had terrible arguments in the 1960s with both my father and my, uh, grandfather, uh, both named John Horgan also, um, about, um, about war and Mm -hmm. about, uh, the Vietnam war, the cold war, you know, they saw these as, uh, as being, um, necessary, um, and just wars. And, um, my attitude was that, um, whatever uh, whatever justification we had for opposing the Vietnamese or the Russians, communists in general, it was insane. The situation we found ourselves in, it was bad for both sides. And we had to find a way out of this impasse where we weren't confronting each other with the possibility of, of uh, mutual annihilation anymore. Um, so I think it actually might have been good for me to to have my father and grandfather um, to argue with uh, to help uh, sharpen my own um, my own attitudes toward uh, warfare and force me to think harder about exactly um, why I thought war was was uh, was such a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that is one of the ironies of my. Um, mm-hmm. Of my upbringing is that uh, I did come out of a military family. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into it because uh, you know I want to you know I also have to, you know I've I've trained I've done ton, uh, trained tens of thousands of people in conflict resolution negotiation over the years, and one of the things that I have observed and a number of my colleagues ha- have observed is you know we do this exercise where we say what comes to mind when you hear the word conflict and people free associate and all the things you might imagine come out of their heads. But then sometimes, um, and, and there's a lot of energy in the room when we do that. There's a lot of energy and drama. Right. And then when we sometimes, we don't always do this, you know, ask the question of what comes to mind when you hear the word peace, the energy gets a lot flatter. 
and and uh, you know, which has been a really a real curiosity, and I can feel it myself sometimes, like hmm, you know. And then Chris Hedges wrote that book, War is What Gives Us Meaning, and you know, is peace boring? Is it just so boring that somehow we are, you know, I don't know. That's one. That's one. I guess one argument for why uh, war is inevitable is that people people just aren't interested in a, a more peaceful world. But I basically wanted you to speak in this interview, and you know, as we know, time goes by. Is is why do you believe? You know, why do you believe that war is not inevitable, and uh, and that we can get beyond it? Why do you well, think that's true? Okay, so. Um in my book, I look at several theories that I think lead people to be uh, pessimistic. Uh, one is uh, the idea that war is in our genes. It's part of human nature that we have always fought and we always will. And it, and it just happens that I spent the weekend of the big blizzard in New York writing um, a piece on this very issue for, you know, I blogged for Scientific American. Mm-hmm. There was a big paper uh, in the science journal uh, called Nature. Uh, on a massacre that took place 10,000 years ago in uh, Africa. Some mm-hmm. skeletons were found, and uh, there were obvious signs uh, that these people had died uh, violently. And there's been immense coverage of this in the New York Times and other media. And uh, most of the coverage says this shows that war is just uh, part of our nature, and it goes way back into human prehistory, possibly all the way to the common ancestor with chimpanzees, who also engage in deadly raids against each other. Um, I, I devote a big part of my book showing that this theory is just false. It mm-hmm. flies in the face of massive evidence that war uh, group fighting um, is a very recent innovation in human uh, prehistory. The oldest evidence of war only goes back about uh, twelve or 13,000 uh, years. War... Uh, emerged among very simple hunter-gatherer groups, um, not just in settled uh, societies, but it really took off after agriculture was invented and you started getting more complex uh, societies emerging. Um, an obvious reason why war isn't innate, not in our genes, is that war is so sporadic. Mm-hmm. And you can get uh, societies that are extremely warlike, like Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan in World War II, and then become virtually pacifist overnight. In this case, after they were, uh, they were soundly defeated in World War II. But there are other cases of uh, societies such as Sweden and uh, Switzerland renouncing war and becoming, um, and becoming very peaceful after having been warlike. Uh, so there's really no scientific basis for the claim that war uh, is in our genes. I also look at the theory that's very popular that war stems from uh, competition for resources, that you get too many people in a, in a given region and there isn't enough uh, water or food or oil today uh, to go around and people start uh, fighting over that. There, believe it or not, there is, is very little evidence that for that uh, theory that war stems from uh, from uh, competition for resources or from poverty or inequality or some of these uh, uh, economic causes. I think that the biggest cause of war, and this is an idea that goes back to Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist. She wrote about this in, um, in 1940, uh, is that war begets war. 
Mm-hmm. So war can actually break out for many reasons, and it actually did in, in early in uh, human history. Once war does break out, it transforms cultures and makes them militaristic and, and therefore much more likely to fight in the future. Well, it's, it really it correlates with Morton Deutsch, who's one of, one of the people that really influenced me at Teachers College. He's one of, often referred to as the grandfather of conflict resolution, but oh. just theories about, you know, that he was writing about in the early 70s of how competition begets competition and right. collaboration begets collaboration, you know, but uh, whatever game you're playing, you're likely to get it from the other side unless you're really skilled and know how to shift the game that's being played. But. Well, you know, so here's here's one area where I might differ with some of your uh, listeners and possibly even you. So I know a lot of peace activists, a lot of people who were working for for peace or the reduction of war in various ways around the world. And I often hear the idea, you know, people are trying to tie war and militarism into conflict of all kinds, uh, conflicts in marriage, conflicts between um, uh, parents and children. Uh, racial conflicts, economic uh, competition. And, you know, some of those phenomena lead to various serious problems. But what worries me is that um, some peace activists think we need to eliminate all conflict and competition uh, kind of as a prerequisite for getting rid of war. Oh, yeah, you're not, you, you, that's not me. I, I mean, I, and I think it's probably not most, I mean, I would say, my view, my colleagues' view that have been t- doing this work for a long time is that conflict is not is neither good nor bad. It's, right. it's and in fact, in fact, you know, you, you need it. You you need to have it. It's inevitable. It's gonna you know, and and it's really what you do with it and how you deal with it. And it's you know, if a conflict breaks out, does that I- inevitably end up erupting to something that's really violent, or do you have the skills to be able to manage it in a way that? can encourage creativity and, and a different kind of relationship afterwards. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm a science journalist. Science is immensely competitive. and There is vicious infighting sometimes uh, among scientists over a new theory or, or set of data. I'm getting into some pretty bruising matches with hmm. other scientists and journalists over some of these claims about um, early warfare. War is this particularly vicious, um, impractical, stupid form of competition that often leads to, uh, to um, lose-lose situations. Everybody uh, ends up having less at the end of a war than they did uh, at the beginning, even if they are uh, victors. It's this, I think of war as this kind of um, parasitic meme. It's one of the worst ideas uh, Ever invented, and it has somehow infected some of the, uh, the the biggest and most powerful cultures, especially the United States in the world today, and um, and it perpetuates itself in uh, in various ways. And my hope is that we can just recognize not only its immorality, but its stupidity and uh, the manner in which it siphons off all this energy and resources away from other problems uh, that that are just crying out uh, for more attention. Social justice issues, environmental issues, uh, our medical system is a shambles in this country. And, you know, we're spending a trillion dollars a year, roughly, on, um, on war and uh, defense-related uh, issues. And that's money that we desperately need for 
for uh, some of these other problems we're facing. So, John, um, you, you know, you're, I want to slowly go back a bit to this point um, about, um, you know, our history, because I think that's a huge idea and also one that Bill Urey uh, uh, t- wrote about in Getting to Peace um, I, I, in the 1990 book, 1999 book, I think it was, Getting to Peace, that I remember his graph of human history. You know, he did a whole timeline, and it was 99%. And Bill Urey's an anthropologist and did, uh, came up with a lot of the similar re- research that I think you've touched on, that 99% of human history, there is no evidence of uh, war or vi- or even... Humans killing humans, I believe he he said it was it was really iffy evidence of any evidence of humans killing being violent towards humans. Uh, but then, in the last ten thousand years or so, he, I remember his graph was ten thousand years of coercion. You know that that we finally settled down, we created more feudal societies, more uh, per, per, uh, pyramid type structures uh, where force and authoritarianism started to take over. And thus we got into uh, more violent conflict. Um, so is that also, that, that comports with your research that you've done in this field? Yes, what- ab- absolutely. Um, but I, I, I think it's important to point out that there's this emerging body of uh, uh, data. I included in my book, and it's also been talked about, uh, written about by, among others, Steven Pinker, the Harvard psychologist, that we are actually believe it or not, in a period of relatively low war casualties, there has been a, a, a really dramatic decline in annual war casualties, especially since, um, since the end of uh, World War II. World War II, depending on how you count the casualties, we had about um, we had uh, a couple of hundred million people uh, die. And uh, average war casualties... Um, for the first half of the 20th century, were maybe a, a million people a year. Since 9-11, even with all the wars and violence um, that have taken place since then, annual war casualties um, have only averaged about 50,000 people a, a year, except for the Syrian war. So we were having this wonderful decline in violence, and then the Syrian war erupted, and now uh, there's this big upsurge and war casualties, but still the overall historical trend has been down. One of the reasons that some scholars think this is taking place is the spread of democracy around the world. Uh, you know, if, if, um, if people listening to this podcast are looking to be, uh, for reasons to be optimistic, one is the decline of war. Another is the spread of democracy. So, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, um, less than only about 10% of uh, the global population could be said to, to be living in some kind of democratic regime. Well, today it's, a, it's about two-thirds of the, the uh, global popu- population. The big exception is, um, is uh, China. And there is evidence that democracies, even though they fight non-democracies, obviously the United States is, is fighting a lot, but it's fighting non-democracies. But democracies don't fight each other. And um, if the trend toward democracy continues, uh, there, there is reason to believe that the, um, the, the broad uh, uh, tendency toward um, decline of war-related violence will also continue. 
At least that's my hope. No, and I know Yuri also in his book was talking about uh, the, the, a big trend uh, like uh, that, that um, the age of coercion was really propelled by uh, competition over, well, he would say competition over land, money, et cetera. But now with the information age, that's a much more flattening event. Mm-hmm. If, if information becomes the, 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 the primary commodity, uh, and more people have access to that and therefore... Um, it it uh, it undermines the need for violent conflict. I think was ha- I think how his argument goes, but um, I don't know if if uh, that also seems to be a trend that makes sense to you. Well, uh, you know, the infer you know the the digital technologies can cut in two directions because I think they do promote more global communication, more uh, understanding, but they're also a way to to spread. Um, Hatred and uh, you know ISIS uh, apparently is uh, is very smart at using social media to uh, recruit people. Um, I- I'm not sure if Yuri is making this point. I, there are some there are some peace activists I've met who are really worried about capitalism and the you know the military industrial complex is having financial motives for perpetuating war. And I understand that. And and um, you know there are some. Uh, companies that are profiting. Off well, of I did want you to speak to that because my own view is sometimes you just need to follow the money. And there are, you know, the handgun issue in the United States, the hand, the small arms. I think that, you know, there are more small arms around the planet that could kill every human being twice or, or some, I can't remember what the statistic, but it's a ridiculous statistic. Yeah. And I, so I think, okay, there's a lot of money being made off of all of that. And as long as that's the case, uh, you know, people are going to if people are are making money off of off of uh, different kinds of arms, and then that's that's propelling uh, a state of war. And of course, then as you're saying, war begets war. You know, does that mean that we can we have it in our grasp to end this? Well, here here's here's how optimistic I am. I actually think that capitalism and commerce can be a progressive force, and especially can promote. Um, peace, or at least uh, uh, at least um, contribute in some way to the anti-war movement. That Lockheed Martin is the biggest defense contractor in the world. If you look at the the biggest companies in the world, they're maybe number number seventy five. You look at the giants of global commerce: it's Apple and Google and Amazon and Walmart, they don't want war. War is bad for business. They want goods to be flowing freely back and forth across national borders. Uh, so I think that capital and capitalism certainly is creating some severe problems. I'm really worried about inequality, I think, as anybody on the left is uh, these days. But um, I'm, you know, we're, we don't have all that much time left. So I just wanted to this is how hopeful I am, Susan. I think that it is possible. My vision is of a new anti-war movement, um, which will be really broad. It will include the traditional people on the left who, who have really uh, struggled uh, for peace. But it will include people on the right who um, are worried about the insane, dis- uh, insanely high spending on our um, defense budget, the the U- United States defense budget is almost as big as the budgets of all other countries uh, in the world combined. I'm hopeful that religious conservatives 
will realize that war violates their basic moral principles. You know, thou shalt not kill. Let's sign up, sign up uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims for um, for the anti uh, anti war um, movement. I think you know the anti war movement has been very sequestered and and isolated. And I think if if people um, if people are presented with uh, with the problem of war in the right way, they'll they'll recognize that it is a it's a moral imperative, and it's also a practical imperative to end war once and for all. This should be an issue for everybody. At least that's my hope. So that's uh, that. That's um, you know, it's it's a pretty cool vision, and I, I'm so glad that you are optimistic. And and then you identified our budget. You know, our 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 the UR being the United States, our budget in contrast to the combined. Um, Budgets of what did you say? All the the rest of the countries of the world combined is that what you said? We're a little bit less, but almost. So the the next biggest budget in the world is China's, which is about one sixth the size of the United States defense budget. So that's a big uh, that's a big deal. And how does one if 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 the end of war is really in our grasp? How does how do we begin dismantling that? intense amount of spending. I mean, this is like a, becomes a budgetary issue. How do we begin dismantling that and redirecting it elsewhere? I think the, the, I would like to see U.S. leaders, let's say, I don't know, Hillary Clinton, somehow convinced that um, ending war is um, a priority and, uh, and giving that as a mission to the Defense Department and the State Department and the United States government um, in general. And so it might begin with looking at the problems in Syria and looking at uh, ISIS and figuring out a way to end those conflicts with an eye toward ending war um, in the future. The problem when we use war, even for so-called humanitarian interventions, every time we use military violence, we're legitimizing military violence for other nations and for ourselves in the future. It's kind of like when you spank your child, you're teaching your kid that that's one way to resolve differences is you hit them. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, so I think I'm not a total pacifist. I think there are some situations where uh, some kind of violence or force is required to stop a greater evil. Um, But you have to do that in a way that, uh, again, does not perpetuate that kind of uh, behavior, make it easier to happen in the future. And the United States obviously is not doing that. Uh, it's not doing that with its wars in, um, in the Middle East. It's, it's occupation of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, its gigantic budget, its constant research on, on new weapons like drones, which are now being built by countries around the world, following the U.S. example. So um, it's it's stating that your goal will be to end war at some time in the future and then rearranging all your policies to reach that goal as rapidly as possible. So where would the pushback come from? Oh, my God, from uh, from so many quarters. (laughs) Uh, People are really profoundly pessimistic. What I try to get people to realize is that war is, it's not like a force of nature. It's not a natural disaster. War is something that is entirely our creation, a product 
of our decisions. The weird thing about war is that, you know, as I've already said, the vast majority of people are, are pessimistic that we can end war. But then if I ask people, well, would you like a world without war? Um, everybody says, well, of course. How can it be that if everybody wants the end of war? And I think virtually everybody does, except for, you know, people who are sociopathic or. or well, people that are making money off of the sale of arms. Even those people, I think, you know, most of them would say that they would prefer, prefer a world without war. They see war, uh, they see defense armaments as uh, really promoting peace, you know, peace through strength, uh, that kind of thing. So then you just have to convince them that, um, that maybe there are other lines of business that would be more productive uh, for them um, in the future. And as I said, I think most companies already see things that way. They don't want to profit from war. So what, you know, one of the things that us uh, process interveners, you know, we always need compelling visions. If, you go, if, you're, in a, if you're in a system, you need, you need a compelling vision to move for if, you, if you're trying to get people motivated around a common goal. And uh, what's your, do you, ha- do you have a picture in your mind? Say it's, uh, I don't know, it's 50 years from now and we've actually been successful. I don't know, 50 is a, a reasonable but we've been successful. We've actually put an end to, to would you say, destructive confl- violence or would you say war? Yeah, and what's sure. Your pic- what's your picture? Do you, do you have a picture of that? You know, I, I, um, when I talk about this with my class, uh, if I'm lucky, I'm in a classroom um, that overlooks the Hudson River and looks across the Hudson at, uh, at Manhattan. And... Um, and I usually start the class by asking my students, do you think war will end? And they all say no. Usually it's unanimous. They all say, no, war will never end. And then I ask them why. And they say, because humans are greedy and we're selfish and I want something and, and that I can't have. And so I fight for it. And, and, you know, or people have different religions and so forth. And, uh, or they, you know, some people have more stuff than others. And I say, um, look across the river at New York. There is a there is a community of people, all different religions, uh, different ideologies, um, rich people, poor people, different races, um, and yet New York is a remarkably peaceful place. At least, maybe peaceful is the wrong word. A nonviolent place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not the murder rates are actually way down in New York compared to what they were about um, about twenty five years ago. Uh, New York is fractious. It's competitive. There's all sorts of conflict in New York, but it is not violent conflict. There aren't suicide bombings uh, in New York City. So I see that when people say, no, we can't stop fighting, I say, here's a model of what the world could look like in the future. New York City, uh, with the, you know, this classic uh, melting pot where people have all kinds of differences um, and lots of fighting going on, but there isn't mass violence. That's the world that, uh, that I envision uh, in the future. And we've already got countless examples of that around the world today. And we just need to make it universal. So that's uh, cool. And I, so I don't know, you're a science journalist, and this may not be a question that, you know, if you can answer. But, you know, a lot of people that listen to this are, are mediators, facilitators, coaches, consultants. They're people that are working with complex systems and, and using their self as interveners. 
any uh, words of wisdom to them or, or, or words of encouragement to them in terms of what they can do to, to, uh, to contribute to what you hope will be a, a, a transformation? I, I, you know, I guess this is just repeating what I've already said, but again, my sense is that when I talk to family members, I, I'm really distressed at how um, depressed a lot of people are about you know, the future of uh, humanity. And I understand that. There, you know, there are good reasons for that. Uh, but um, there are a lot of things that are moving in the right direction. So my hope is that in the conversations that people have um, with friends and colleagues and, and, uh, and loved ones, that they, um, they try to promote a more optimistic outlook, not just for its own sake, but because they're actually um, – some very positive trends happening, the decline of violence. Uh, humans are living longer um, than they ever were uh, in the past. Um, democracy is uh, spreading, um, spreading around the world. Uh, even uh, in spite of all our environmental problems in, uh, in New York City, uh, the air is cleaner, the, war, the water is cleaner, Humans are doing a lot of things right on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to remember that not to diminish the problems that we have, uh, but to help us realize that we're capable of taking on our problems and making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's my, my happy, uh, happy-go-lucky uh, message. Yeah, I don't know if it's happy-go-lucky. It's optimistic and it's refreshing to hear somebody speak optimistically and speak optimistically with a lot of data to support what you're saying. So, I mean, it's not just a wish. It's not just wishful thinking. It's actually thinking based on a lot of research that you've done. So, um, thank you. I appreciate your your saying that. Yeah. So, John. So, yeah, we're coming to, coming to the end of our time, and I don't know if there's any. I mean, you sort of did make some final words. You might have some other final words, but also wanted to know how listeners can reach you and. I mean, I imagine sure. you, you could really be a great speaker. I don't know if, if you do that or if... Um... I do. I, uh, I love giving talks, especially at universities. On, um, on um, the end of war, I'm giving a talk at um, Manhattanville College uh, in a couple of weeks. And um, I write a lot about uh, war and related issues on my Scientific American blog, which is called uh, Crosscheck. Uh, people can easily find that if they just Google my name. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, from some of your listeners and to, to know about their their uh, experiences. Okay. So, uh, any 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 uh, anything else you want to say before we before we say goodbye? Or I, I think I've already browbeaten your listeners enough with my uh, with my uh, positive message. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate Stop Wars Now. <laughs> the T shirt. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah, I actually did, you know, I did notice in your book you were you you had gone on there was one at the very end that I thought was really interesting about um the way that propaganda can impact us. It was the way that Star Wars no, it wasn't Star Wars. I'm looking at your T shirt, I'm thinking Star Wars. But it was um two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And it had opened with the ape. Uh, you know, the ape, I don't know if people remember that movie, but it was a really compelling vision of the ape with a big, bo a big weapon in his hand, and he was about to, uh, uh, you know, uh, destroy another ape. I'm not sure I got the image right. You but got it. I just showed that to my class 
last week. That's called the Dawn of Man sequence. In 2001, an ape picks up a bone of an animal that it's killed and beats to death another ape. These are sort of ape men. They're supposed to be Australopithecines. Uh, and by the way, that scene is based on a theory of the day that uh, Australopithecines were, act- were, were extremely violent toward each other. And all that science has been discredited now. And I actually talk about that in my book. Yeah. So it's a great image, great way that the media uses the image. And it's totally scientifically inaccurate. <laughs> yes. so, um, so anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the research that you've been doing and the speaking you've been doing to t- try and educate people on, on what the real data is, is showing us about our propensity towards war, our propensity towards peace. So, uh, Pleasure. Okay. All right. So I'll see you around soon. And thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please mail them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.